when I was very young in 2009, I think it was 2009, I, I came to your place for a few days and we analyzed uh, variations of the Nidorf. And you were uh, thinking over the board mostly and, and thinking about the position and I was mostly on the computer and I started to feel like maybe I was annoying you with this computer stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I still remember, I played this line later that we analyzed and I lost. Oh. So. <laughs> <laughs> so did he annoy you? <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the C-Squared podcast. We have yet another legend in-house with us. We have the one and only Judith Polgar. Judith, welcome to the C-Squared podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here in St. Louis, have you here with us. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here with you. Tell us a, a little bit about uh, your trip to St. Louis. Is this the first time that you came here? Actually, I visited St. Louis before to my sister when she was working at the Webster University. And this is the first time when I'm visiting the club and the World Hall of Fame. And it's quite impressive, I must say. And there's definitely a very important reason that you are here. You just got inducted into the World Chess uh, Hall of Fame. Um, how do you feel about this accomplishment, let's say? <laughs> Uh, in one hand, it's very special because it is something very unique and it's for, for history. At the same time, I'm a person of uh, living for today and looking forward for the new things. And, uh, and also as a chess player, I, I was used to the fact that I'm working hard, I play competition, I get my reward of winning games or even winning tournaments. And then I feel the effort I did, right? And then uh, a word like this, uh, it just comes, right? After so many years. So sometimes I, I don't know how to handle it properly, maybe. And it takes time until I, I really say, wow, that's good. <laughs> well, you did say that you retired officially, but we still, you know, harbor some hopes that maybe you will at one point come back. Do you ever think about that at, at all? Or? Uh, well, I don't want to disappoint anybody <laughs> <laughs> and uh, take away the hopes, but it definitely won't be happening in the near future. Actually, I was wondering about that transition from professional top-level chess player, because at some point all of us have to go through this, to non-chess life. Is that a difficult change? Did you find that to be a difficult change, or did you embrace... Uh, moving away from the professional chess life? I hope this is not a question as you're planning to retire. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no it's just, I, I was very curious about it because, well, it's, uh, you know, we all have our uh, moment as a professional player and in our life and then as a, you know, we move on at some point and I was curious about your perspective. Yeah. Uh, it was not an overnight decision that I stopped playing chess after 38 years of playing. Uh, I was, uh, in that time already, I was doing many things. I established my foundation. I wrote my trilogy, my book series. I was uh, developing together with my team an educational program. Uh, so there were a lot of other things I was uh, connected to. And uh, at some point you just say, you can do everything. And also the priorities not necessarily are there anymore as a professional player. So 
uh, it was something that I decided and my husband was very supportive and we made this transition in a, in a very nice way, I believe. I think uh, many of the players, even when they retire, they don't announce it. Yeah. And and also, for example, there are some players, for example, Kramnik, he's, uh, he announced it, but actually he's still there, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, he's still true. playing <laughs> in Blitz and Rapid and exhibitions. Uh, I'm, I can't do that because uh, somehow uh, after you retire, you, you, you lose the touch, right? It's like uh, you don't feel the game anymore. It's not that you, you forget everything, but yeah. you just don't feel it. So the result, if I would be playing one game here, one game there, it will be, it would be disappointment for myself, I think. Is, is it sort of like a mental thing? Like when you're into chess, that it's always in your, the back of your mind, and then when you start transitioning to other things, that, like that moment where you wake up and you're just thinking about some position that just fades away a little bit? I think this is one of the secret being on the top, that simply it's not that whatever amount of hours you're spending at the board training, but really those moments when you're walking and talking to each other and uh, when you're eating and you, it, something comes up, even if it's not a novelty of, of, of your life, mm -hmm. still it is something that it's on your mind. I mean, you can yeah. see even Anand, he was younger, he was always on chess. You could see Kramnik or whoever on the top. They are really in that box, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it's, it's just simply something you have to have on whatever sport yeah. you are doing. So for me, it was uh, when I said I'm retiring in 2014, actually in the last few rounds of the Tromsø Olympiad, uh, it was funny that I was talking with one of the grandmasters after the last round, and he came to me and says, yeah, I just heard that you announced that you're retiring. And then we were talking like a few minutes about it, and then before saying goodbye, he says, where are you playing next? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I said, well, we just had a talk that I retired, and I'm not joking about it. And uh, it was interesting because it was, you feel like a little bit empty after that, at the same time, I was very happy that, that I knew that I have a new life mm -hmm. ahead of me. But somehow I also felt uh, I was doing already the chess festival. And I felt while doing other things, I got very positive feedbacks. And that also gave me the, the pleasure and the self-confidence to, to do other things related to chess, but already not on the chessboard, but outside of the chessboard. And I also believed that I could do much more giving mm -hmm. back to chess already outside of the board than on the board. I imagine that you bring that competitive side from chess into other endeavors as well. Is that, is that your personality in some ways? You know, it's interesting because when you're a competitor in sport, success can be measured in points, in mm -hmm. rating points, yeah. in victories. I mean, it's so clear that even if someone does not play chess, they see the numbers. <laughs> and yeah. that is not lying and you can't blah, 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 right? In other fields, it's different. Mm -hmm. in, and, and in the beginning, it was something very strange for me that uh, I'm not losing. People are happy. <laughs> even if I consider that I did not do the thing which I planned that it should work out that way, and I knew or I felt that it was much lower level or, or it turned out differently, which I was not happy with, the people from outside, they don't see it because it's not about points. 
And so then, how did you measure uh, that feedback? <clears throat> do you read the comments for, let's say, whenever you do commentary? Uh, do you watch how many people are watching the stream or, or things of that nature? How do you motivate yourself in that regard? Um, yeah, of course, numbers there is is clear that it's a it's a sign. So uh, also feedbacks, personal feedbacks, and also emails and online. Of course, the comments on live stream. <laughs> maybe yeah. s most likely it's much better not to read them. Um, uh, well, you feel that also as a professional player that when you're commentating what lines you had, I'm trying to explain it for also an audience who is not so strong player. Uh, but basically feedbacks from persons and numbers. Actually, I was, <clears throat> I was thinking about this, especially when you were talking last night to, uh, during your interview, and you mentioned that you have that, that drive, right, from an early age. And I, I thought maybe there's a separation with chess players between those who are competitive inwardsly to they have they bring out their competition in themselves, trying to improve themselves constantly, and those who compete with others, like I need to beat this person. And do you feel like there's a difference there? Like do you get your motivation more from improving yourself or more from finding an obstacle, like an opponent that you need to defeat? Actually, it's, a, it's an extremely good question. And I think uh, it is also something extremely important for uh, youngsters nowadays to understand that it's, it's either 50-50 or, or more that you have to be focusing on yourself to be happy and balanced in a long time. Mm -hmm. Because I was a competitor for so long. At the same time, for me, chess was always an art. That's, that's very clear. For a long time, art was somehow more a priority in my game than the rating points. Uh -huh. And I could raise my rating over 2,700 only when I understood that art should be second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you have to do your research. And after all, I'm a sport person, so maybe I should look the result first. And, uh, but I could at the same time improve my chess always because I was... Uh, in a, in a competition with my own self. And I think that's the only way you can improve, to be self-critical, as all chess players we are, I think, as we always have to reconsider our previous moves made. And uh, so I have to have the inner uh, drive to get better, to make it, uh, of course, in a chess game, or chess preparation, you always you have several things. You want to get a new idea. You want to surprise your opponent. You have to have the psychological mm -hmm. element and some other stuff. But uh, when I work on on the festival, for example, getting new ideas, it's it's all about my uh, uh, brain that very takes me and and that I'm motivated because I'm interested about it. And I think that can make things different from one another when a company makes an event and there has to be a board, there has to be the decoration, it has to be the seats and, and all those hundreds of uh, different things, that's one thing. But when you, you make an event with a special touch and, and this, this feeling of experience, which you have to be there because only then you feel it, that's a different story, and, and that's what I'm trying to implement in the festival also. And that's the feedback I get, that, that uh, it's inspirational. 
So, so going back to your question, I think it is very important that that you motivate yourself and and uh, somehow you're happy and inspiring your own self mm -hmm. to get better and to do things which you're happy with because after that the result also comes uh, more naturally. And speaking of uh, the competitive nature, um, you took that from playing and training early on with your sisters. Um, talk to us a bit about the system that your dad implemented with you and your sisters that made you also great. Well, I'm pretty sure if I would be going to school and uh, and I would have been training two, three hours a day, I would <laughs> nowhere. Not enough. Two, three hours, not enough. No way. No way. Because my strength was uh, never the opening preparation, for example, mm. even though I could have enough time to work it out. But my strength was that really the tactics, the passion, the the combinations were in my blood. Mm. Which means, in reality, that whenever I was playing in a game, I was able to calculate further. I could set up so-called tricks or traps because I knew so many different patterns. And uh, I think it all goes back to, to really the, the amount of training. Early uh, on. Yeah. Yeah, that I was able to manage uh, my time much better than my opponent. I had the feeling I had this very special touch. It's like you're feeling the mm -hmm. ball, right? Mm -hmm. It's like somehow you have the feeling where the ball is coming, what is going on. I had a very good sense of creating opportunities where many people did not see it. And I think it was because I was ready to know and, and understand so many different patterns that I could prepare it already much more in advance than others. And, and this was due to the, the practice. Take us uh, through a day of uh, preparation early on when you just started playing chess. Did you guys have those like little cards with diagrams on it and your dad gave you like 50 <clears> of them <throat> each day? Like how did your day look like? Uh, well, let's say when I was already nine, I was kind of a professional player. Uh, well, in the, in the morning I woke up, we did some sport, table tennis, at age 10 I started. Then uh, I had a training for three hours, then lunch break, then another three, four hours, and then in the evening another two hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, but simply the atmosphere in the house, it was very chess vibes in every way, because, for example, we had a wall with the little chess sets, like 30 chess sets on the wall. And whenever the trainers came and they before they left, they were setting up positions. I mean, those times from books, of course, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. magazines. And sometimes it was just simply very simple, like mating two, mating three tactics. But later on, there were a lot of composition studies. And uh, so that was always there, going back to the very beginning, what we were talking, mm -hmm. that it's just there, right? Yeah. Like you're passing by on the room, it's, ah, it still didn't solve that. Mm -hmm. So it's it, the presence of chess, the board, the pieces, the, the players, the information, the news, and all these things, it was always present in every room. Well, we were living in a small apartment, so there were not so many rooms, but still chess boards uh, on, the, on the table, on the wall. And um, 
so that that was the special atmosphere which which made it and I think you mentioned a few times your dad was not a very strong player, but he had just incredible materials. How did he source uh, his materials? There was also no stockfish back then. He couldn't help you in that regard. And also, when did he kind of take a step back and let other trainers come and train you guys? Basically, he was a great fan of chess. And I think partly because of the Fisher's Pasque, Susan mm. started to play chess because it, it was exactly that time. Um, and for him, it was very natural that his dream was that uh, his daughters are not going to go to school, so we are homeschooled and focusing on one specific f field. So it was chess at the end. And uh, he was uh, very clear on his views that uh, eventually he'll have to get trainers and focusing on chess. So when I was seven, I beat him already blindfolded. Mm. And that, that was a point which was very clear that I will move on to some other trainers. Though I still had, I already had, I think, a trainer uh, working with me. And that time I was working alone with the trainer. But shortly after that, I was already having trainings together with Sophia when I started to catch up. So that was kind of natural. And then later on, he understood that he has to invite other trainers to specific openings and uh, middle game and end game. But somehow opening had not such a big uh, value for him. Mm. Actually, I was playing the King's Gambit myself. It was his idea because he liked all these beautiful evergreen games. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually playing it until I became a grandmaster, which is quite strange. But I think I had a, um, there, it, it was a problem later on that I started to work on openings in a much later stage than I should have. Nowadays, you would not, uh, could not afford that you play King's Gambit with mm. three bishop c4. <laughs> I think I, I heard this from Vichy, like, a, it was already many years ago, but he said that one of the ways that they tried to take advantage uh, or try to exploit your style was that you had some weaknesses in the opening, that they had preparation that was a bit more advanced, especially a guy like Vichy, who had the best preparation yeah. you could imagine for, for so long. Do you feel like that was one of the ways you struggled against um, players of your generation or players uh, of your level? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's not a question. I mean, I had to compensate it so much in the middle game. It was there were years, even in the mid-90s, that... Uh, that simply it was very clear that I was behind in opening preparation. And many games it happened that I was like worst position after move 8, 12. And then I had to put so much more energy into middle game to turn things around. I could do it and it was, it was good, but somehow the energy should have been spent more on the getting a good opening and not, not to try to fix everything in the middle yeah. game. And of course, I could not fix everything in the middle game. On the other hand, it does <coughs> improve your defensive, like, especially for young players when they don't have openings and they're forced to, to play from slightly worse or much worse positions. It really does help defensive skills. And that skill does, at some point, become very useful, especially if you get good openings and then, you, you know, you don't get so many bad positions, but the bad positions you get, you suddenly can defend very well. Yes, that's, that's true that I was... Uh 
you can call it uh, defending and uh, good defense and fighting spirit because many times I was playing on and hanging on even in, at points where people thought maybe I should be resigning. <laughs> and I saved some of the uh, great savings I had. But, uh, but still, I would have been, I think, more happy to, to, to have better openings because that, that was my shortage, that's clear. That was my, my weakest point. And the higher level I was moving, the more difficult it mm -hmm. became. Because, of course, I mean, against some players, you don't get the second chance. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. can tell about, talk about <laughs> that a lot yourself, I think. No, but it, it was a bit different because for, for me, I didn't, I wasn't playing at this level in a period where I think openings, it felt like you couldn't escape the opening as easily. Now it's like you can play anything you want. And we sp spoke about this with Levon as well a little bit. But at least this is what Rustam told me, that in the 90s, people were panicking because what, how do I survive against E4? The Berlin wasn't on the, on the stage <laughs> yet. And some Sicilians, you thought you might just lose by force. So it must have been especially difficult because uh, you feel like there isn't, it's a rather narrow road to survival against, let's say, a guy like... Uh, Vichy or, or Gary or, or, uh, or Kramnik. Um, so I think, I think now, nowadays it's a bit easier, especially with, uh, with the modern technology as well. Yeah, I mean, modern chess is, is a lot different than it was uh, in, in my prime years. It is very, very different. And uh, it's not less interesting at all. But uh, yeah, thanks to the technology, it became that way that you can come up with an idea in the morning and then you figure out in an hour or two. Of course, not against everybody. And, uh, and I think memory is more important mm -hmm. nowadays that you're really ready for anything. Uh, so you have different skills, I think, for modern chess than it was before. Yeah. I was, uh, Go ahead. I was just wondering, because earlier you mentioned that um, artistic versus practical or competitive aspect. And the players from your generation, a lot of them have this very artistic reputation, like Ivanchuk, Kramnik is like, uh, you know, <coughs> always said artistry was, uh, even Rustam, right? Uh, he was always, I think, going for these uh, very creative artistic solutions rather than the like practical chess we're used to now. Do you feel like that was a shift in generations that at some point, like your, your generation was very artistic and then it changed a little bit after? Um, yeah, I think the generation of today, they are much more practical in some ways. They, they like to save time and energy. Mm. <laughs> and in my time when I was a kid, I mean, you don't have an engine. You have to understand and put the viewers in the situation that just imagine no technology. You have a chessboard, you have your sister, you have your friend, your coach. And you're just having the chessboard there. You have some books, very few books, right? Very few good books. And usually that's in other language, not in Hungarian, mm -hmm. mostly in Russian. Okay, we had a huge library. But you have the books and, and everything is so slow looking back, right? And when you look at the board, first of all, you look the physically the board. 3D board, yeah. yeah. 3D board. You make moves. And then, of course, the creativity comes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then, of course, you go to analyze some. Wow, this is so beautiful. This, oh, and this one. And when you work like eight, ten hours a day, 
you don't feel it necessarily mm-hmm. that much. Oh, I have another 10 minutes to work, so let's do something. Yeah. No, you don't know where you're heading to. Mm-hmm. Nobody is there to tell you, no, this is the wrong direction. Of course, you have a sense of feeling, right? Intuition, well, okay, that should work, this shouldn't work, or whatever. But in that kind of flow, you have completely different ideas come to your mind. And I'm pretty sure that nowadays, if you would not have computers or just take away the evaluation of the computer, Mm. already something completely different would happen. For sure, yeah. I mean, just take away the evaluation. But we were actually discussing this with Levon as well. The eval always changes with every single new Stockfish, Stockfish 11, Stockfish 12, 15. They give different evals, also different moves as well. And we, in the present times, believe that what we see right now on the computer screen is the truth. And then next year, the truth changes, basically. Yeah, but the thing is, everybody believes the same. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's also true. Right? Yeah. So which means, even if it's not true, but your computer, his computer, her computer says the same, is the truth. And all of us believe that. And it's very hard to be critical on the engine. Very difficult. Because yeah. I remember when I had my serious struggle to accept that I have to work with an engine and I have to rely on an engine <clears throat> because it simply saves time. And most of the time it is, it is more right than I am. I was struggling mm. heavily. It was early in the 2000, year of 2000. And, and of course, uh, it was also difficult for the engine to, to, to gain the trust of me. And I think also some other people had the same, because in evaluation, it was tricky. Mm-hmm. And of course, it depends very much how depth and how much time you give to the computer. I had a very concrete example when I was playing against in Dos Hermanas against uh, Mickey Adams, against his marshal. Mm-hmm. And I had an idea. And I figured out, I said, okay, if this is going to be on the board, I'm winning. And uh, it happened. It was standing on the board. He reacted something. And I said, I don't see better than a perpetual check. <laughs> no, 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 no. The engine said, I'm winning. winning. Yeah. If the engine said, I'm winning, I have to play on. And I played on and I lost the game. I was so pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, um, like the famous... Yeah, yeah, the famous yeah. So it's, uh, it was very tricky, but by now I think uh, all of us uh, believes sometimes uh, more than we should. Of course, I'm not playing, I'm just checking sometimes and after commentary. But uh, it is something very interesting how it develops. But for example, I believe in modern chess, it gives a lot of self-confidence to the players. I don't know what about you, how you feel that the engine gives self-confidence or uh, it's killing you? Well, actually, what Christian mentioned about how the, you know, the engine changes year, year by year and our analysis changes, if you just change the, not even the engine, but just uh, the hardware that you're using mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you suddenly get totally different evaluations, wildly different sometimes, it's, it's amazing how different it can be. And then it changes your perception of the entire mm. position. Uh, it's also what Levon mentioned that we're, we're not so much like when you were analyzing openings and you mentioned that it was more like exploration and you're in like this forest and you have to try to find something, some way out of it, some sort of clarity. And now it's like we're, we're giving all this guidance, uh, but you don't know if it's misleading you sometimes because it might be correct, but mm-hmm. you, you don't 
you might not understand it, right? It might not help you at the board. So it has its own challenges. But actually, I was reminded um, when I was very young in 2009, it was 2009, I, I came to your place for a few days and we analyzed uh, variations of Nidorf. And you were uh, thinking over the board mostly and, and thinking about the position and I was mostly on the computer and I started to feel like maybe I was annoying you with this computer stuff. <laughs> and I, I still remember, I played this line later that we analyzed and I lost. Oh. So. <laughs> so did he annoy you? <laughs> no, no, I don't. Re I remember that we were working together, yeah, on, on some things, but I don't remember it was uh, annoying. I mean, by that time I was okay with the computers mm -hmm. as well. It also feels like um, you need to put resources in completely different things nowadays as a chess player to improve. Back in the days, it was just traveling tournaments and getting coaches, travel with you potentially and training at home. Now you have to spend money on actually buying cloud engines. Um, sure, get a coach, but you might as well just spend that money to buy 100 hours of cloud engine computing if you don't have a very strong computer. And most strong computers cannot um, even compete with what you have on like the cloud engine, chess-based cloud engine and so on. So it feels like the resources are going into completely different places um, nowadays. I want to go back a little bit and I want to discuss about uh, your relationship with your sisters because I feel it was so important that you guys were a group. You were training as a group and I cannot see the system that um, your dad implemented work for a single child, for example, because it, you just don't have that group to train with, to bounce ideas off of. How do you feel about that? Uh, well, nowadays I think it could be possible because of the internet. Because of the uh, yeah. engines, so you, yeah. Uh, not only engines, because of the internet, that basically you can have friends and sparing partners very easily online. And that can be inspirational and it can be an everyday great training and, uh, and supporting each other. But of course, uh, for us it was very special that we were three of us and, and we were traveling the three of us most of the time until a certain point, until I was about 12. Uh, and that was very inspiring for me and it was, it was really a unity uh, that, that uh, we created and we supported each other very much. We were happy for each other results. So that was something very special, but you can see in the world now that uh, there are quite a few sisters and brothers who you can see uh, developing and being uh, very successful. Was it difficult to separate that, uh, let's say, support and uh, sometimes a co competition? Was there any ever any feeling of competition between uh, you and your sisters? It's interesting that there wasn't, and I think the reason is because... Uh, we grew up in such a special, unusual way that many people were very skeptical about the way my parents were raising me and my sisters. So the government gave hard time for my parents with the fact that we were homeschooled. And then there was a <clears throat> difficulty for my parents from the Federation because the Federation was uh, not very supportive on the fact that we were playing in open section against uh, men and we wanted to excel there. So that was another problematic um, difficulty. Mm -hmm. And because of that, that many people looked at us in a very strange way and skeptical way. 
I think due to these circumstances that we did not have uh, at all any rivalry. Moreover, it was extremely supportive, especially I remember when Susan was uh, saying uh, very positive things and very encouraging things, which was very natural for me at the time. But looking back, it was something very uh, brave and, and smart from her. Uh, she was great already, like she was 2,500 or so. And I was growing, and she was the one who always said in interviews that, well, she, she's going to be the best out of the three of us. So, so we were really happy for each other's result because we also felt that it's somehow it's partly our success. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that uh, the Federation was giving, not providing support or even putting some obstacles. And I, I got the impression that uh, you and your family faced a lot of obstacles from different chess institutions or, or even chess players. Was that something that was difficult to deal with when you were improving and also when you were already an established player and also for, for your sisters as well? Well, it caused uh, difficulty, but I think uh, it was mostly for Susan who had to deal with that and also for my parents. As Susan was the first child that was really, they didn't know how things worked that much. When I was uh, number three in the family, they had already quite a few and uh, good experiences with the different things. So they knew more how to deal with those uh, obstacles. But uh, yeah, it was uh, it was challenging. But uh, for me, for my character, it was sometimes also uh, even pushing me to have a more drive. But it had to be also because I was very successful. So, of course, when you win game after game and they're skeptical and they say bad things or negative things, you don't really believe it or it's okay, but I still win my game. So what's the problem? So I think this is very important that uh, it's like 80-20, like you have your success 80%, you have 20, not so good, Mm -hmm. then uh, you still have your self-confidence and uh, you can move on. It's a problem when things don't work out, even though you're making, you're putting all your efforts and it's not converted into results and then people are skeptical, then it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Finding uh, that, let's say, enemy, whoever was against you, that type of mental model, we hear that from a lot of athletes. They find these enemies and then they focus on that and they get inspiration and motivation from uh, that. How did you uh, reach those conclusions to create those mental models and uh, to help you become better? I don't know. I think it became, it was natural for me somehow that uh, as I got so many positive encouragement from my family and coaches that it was just pushing away Mm. those negative... uh, But you fed off of those negative... uh, Absolutely. Well. I mean, it is. It was very clear, but but somehow I think because of the self confidence, I could push it away. It it was uh, you know when you're you're in sport, and you're successful, uh, you don't think about w- what's the recipe of your success. Yeah. It's just you go with the flow. You go from one game to another, one training to another, one tournament to another. And, and, and you start somehow feeling that, okay, I have to improve here or I have to check. Sometimes it's very concrete. 
And sometimes uh, it's not concrete at all. You just know that you're not on the right path and you have to somehow to recover. But I think it all comes through experience. It's very difficult to say, like, what is the recipe? Many people ask me, I'm sure many people ask you, what is the recipe to become a world-class player? <laughs> That's a difficult question. <laughs> and, and probably you can say many things, but, uh, but sometimes the most important is missing, or the people who are successful, they can't put it in words, what is that exactly, which, which puts it in that frame. It's like, uh, you know, sometimes in cooking also. I mean, you can make the same recipe in different pots and it comes out differently at the end. How would you deal with those uh, setbacks? And can you remember a uh, longer period where you felt like your play is just, you're just not yourself? And how would you deal with that? That's very difficult. When uh, I remember when in the uh, end of 99, I played several bad tournaments in Pamplona, then in Vaikanze. Um, when you play very badly, that's already the good part. Mm. For me, as far as I remember, when, when really like every single opening choice, middle game decision, end game uh, theoretical decision, time management. So when everything goes wrong, then you already know that, I mean, everything is going so wrong that uh, you're laughing already, crying and laughing. Mm -hmm. When it's only a little bit bad, that's the most difficult, I think. Let's say, okay, something didn't work out, and then another game didn't work out, and, and you just know that you just don't feel it. You're mentally not ready, you're not focused enough, you don't really understand what is going on and where why you make those wrong decisions. And, uh, well, many times if you are just starting to feel that you're out of form, when already the sportive uh, person in myself versus the artistic person mm. was dealing with this question, then uh, I was trying to avoid the complications and I went, with, if it, I was right, I said, okay, I just make a draw and then let's see the day after. When I went down completely, like I really lost, I don't know, five games, six games, almost in a row in, in uh, Vacance in 2000. Um, then you have to reconsider yourself that, I mean, something is really going wrong. Um, and I had to think, well, first of all, to gain back a little self-confidence, I was going back always to my old games which mm. I played well. Mm. So I see some great games of mine and say, wow, <laughs> I could play chess, this is good. <laughs> so to somehow motivate myself that how can I get back those strengths, uh, that mindset and, and stuff like that. And I think one of the most dangerous things for a chess player on whatever level you are, losing your self-confidence. Yeah. So that is something essential. So you have to make sure that, uh, and also when, when things went wrong, let's say, then sometimes I just forgot about the, the opening and I go home and then, okay, let's go back to the chess which you love, why you love chess and to see games, to, to solve chess studies, to look at end games or middle game where you don't have the pressure about the opening. When, I mean, you, you can associate with that, I think, very much that you're, 
checking NIDOR for hundreds of hours, <laughs> and then you still say, what am I going to play? <laughs> yeah, that's, unfortunately, so that's, that's an issue. Yeah. Quite frustrating, <laughs> I must say. And of course, uh, when in these periods when I had not so many, but a few occasions when I was really somehow out of control, I think uh, the most important was for me to stop, to forget about the opening, everything which makes you stressful and to get back for the, the love of the game and then somehow build back your hunger also that, okay, so now I'm ready, okay, give me this opening and I will figure out something. Because you can make moves, right? Mm -hmm. It's only that you get so depressed about some openings that, I mean, Berlin, I mean, no matter how many hours, hundreds, yeah. thousands of hours you're looking at it, you will not find real advantage. So it's only your mindset that, okay, the way you sit there at the board, I say, okay, this time I'm going to try one more and not making a big deal out of it to have another draw. <laughs> Actually, it's funny, Levon said exactly, he mentioned exactly the same opening yesterday. He was like, yeah, the Berlin, no matter how much you work, you'll never find it's it over. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I, I have this feeling that like, yeah, you're working analytically on something mm -hmm. and you feel like, um, and I think this is also an issue that a lot of players, for example, even like Peter Laco, I think that he, he would get so much into theoretical aspect and think there's nothing here and then forget that you know your opponent is also human <laughs> and has their own worries and they might not remember and they might make mistakes or they might not have analyzed something. And then once you get to the board, everything seems like I, I suddenly have this shift. Like I'm analyzing all this concern and worry about the opening and then you get to the board and you realize, okay, we have to play a game. And it's more, most likely going to come down to something besides whatever I was analyzing. That's, it's very rarely that, that that's going to decide the game. So after these bad tournaments, uh, Judith, were you usually going back home and taking a break, taking some time off, or were you going back home and training twice as hard? Neither. <laughs> uh, no, I never had that, that I had a week break, let's say, after bad things. Um, because you mentioned motivation, and that's very easy to lose right once you lose a lot of games in a row for example yeah but you shouldn't lose your motivation just because one two tournament but uh, well you you start yeah a little bit let it go not to focus immediately 10 hours a day because you try to think about it and i think now i would do differently also <laughs> because in, in those times as that was my routine for so many years and, and decades to to work every day it was somehow the natural way of fixing things. But sometimes it's, it's better just to, to, to go to walks and get, get out of chess and then sit down and, and with fresh eye and fresh brain and fresh attitude to reconsider yourself. Because nowadays I think you need quite a different approach to, to restart, to press that button. <laughs> <laughs> I have this feeling that, you know, the computer, you're, it's too, too long, it's on, and somehow you have to restart it. And we also have to have the find the restart button. I, I heard um, this remarkable um, fact last night. Uh, it said that you won, you beat 11 world champions, which must be so rare for any player because I don't think I've even played 11 world champions. <laughs> <laughs> but do you have any favorite players that you played against throughout the history of your career or or players that you you know dominated you were always beating them or players that you had a lot of difficulties with well the most difficult player was for me uh, versus Kramnik mm. 
and I think it's his style. Before you mentioned that how artistic he is, but I think he became artistic much later. Mm-hmm. Not in his very young years when, well, you can say it's artistic, but it's very much positional art, which he was already at a very young age when he was like 16. Um, well, I had the difficulties against many players, but for example, Kremnik, I never won. Maybe I won a, in a Blitz game. But uh, I mean, it was very difficult to play against Kasparov, for example, for a long time. And then eventually I, I chose specific strategies against him and I could break that. Mm-hmm. And it's not only in result, but uh, with Gary, the problem was you haven't played him much, right? Because you're I played so him much in younger. Blitz. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. already past his retirement. Yeah. Because when you played against Gary, he's, uh, he's extremely strong person, mm-hmm. personality now also if you meet him. Yeah. But when he was a competitive player back then, he was, he, he was five times more. Mm-hmm. And uh, for a long time, for me, it was a problem that when he came to the board, he just simply gave the impression that he wants to eat you up alive mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. there. So it was, uh, in some games, it seemed to me, looking back, that it was kind of a formality just to play the game, <laughs> but it was very clear what will be the end of the result of the game. Mm. And that was a very bad feeling. So that was broken in 2000 uh, when I had a, a very exciting game. I lost that one, but uh, it was a breaking point that finally I was, I was not somehow feeling the, the fact that it's, it's a formality, you know? And in 2001, that was the breaking point when I, uh, I was playing in Linares two games with white and black, and then it was both of them was a draw. In, in this special way that I said, okay, I'm going to play his own strategy, playing six, uh, knight g4 against the bishop e3 neither. And I mean, he was the biggest expert of that line, right? So I said, okay, <laughs> I take my gloves and, and fight in his own territory. And uh, in the other one, I said, okay, I'm going to be attacking him no matter what by any means. It cost me <laughs> several pawns and pieces, <laughs> but I managed and he got scared and somehow I, I shuffled things the way it was a draw. So that was kind of the breaking point against him. And then it was not easy, but that was also interesting when it was similar that but he- Just to, about Kasparov, you, you finally beat him it was, it was in yeah. Berlin, right? Yes, it was in Berlin because game, yeah. he made a very bad, bad choice and it was rapid. Yeah. But actually in my heart, I have these two draws mm-hmm. on a much higher okay. priority because that was the breaking point between uh, our chess mm-hmm. relationship. That's when you felt like you can... Yes, that simply him. he was sweating, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? At some point, even though he could win in that game in where I was attacking, I was playing with White, he was talking to me after the game and even during the game you felt that he's not scared because he was never scared but you could feel the the tension that he was worried let's say did you feel like you gained his respect after those two draws was that the feeling absolutely and after that uh, he also invited me half a year later or so to the summer uh, summer chess camp where in croatia he's he was spending a few months every year which meant that obviously he would not invited me if he wouldn't find it interesting to, mm-hmm. to, to work. And, uh, and after that, I won against him. Mm. So that was interesting. 
Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, relationship that you develop with your opponents over uh, the board and over the years as well, right? Well, that's how chess is, that we meet our opponents uh, during a decade or two. Of course, now maybe there are new new players coming and, and maybe faster retiring, but I'm not sure because we have several new generations since I stopped. And uh, but But it's a fact that if you play someone... Uh, 10 years ago, it's a completely different person who you play 10 years later. Of course, you check the openings, what has happened. You, it little influences you, the results that you had, but uh, not as much as before. Yeah, that's very interesting. And you mentioned that you train uh, with Kasparov, but um, I also want you to talk a little bit about uh, your uh, trainings with uh, Bobby Fischer. Uh, he came, he visited a little bit, uh, you and your sisters, and uh, you guys trained together. Uh, well, with Bobby, we didn't train together. <laughs> we were spending time together. He was visiting our home quite frequently. And uh, he was interesting. He was, uh, he was pretty childish, I must say. Mm. He was always wanting to be funny. And... Uh, but he was obsessed with his ideas about the pre-arranged games, what the Russians were doing. And, uh, but he was focusing a lot on explaining that the old chess, the classical chess, the rules and how we play it, it's already the past. And of course the Fischer random 960 in other name uh, has to replace chess because this opening preparation is nonsense. Mm. It's just taking away time and energy from something what is not important in chess and well look what happened and uh, well he was in ahead of his time in many ways it's also i think it was his uh, uh, thought that the digital clock and to have the bonus time per move mm. back in 92 when it was the rematch actually i was one of the first person who played with that clock myself also because I had my match against Boris Pesky where we played with that. Or this the Cytex or? No, it was a special design for him special for that design. match. Yeah, mm. special wow. design, and uh, and we played. I think with Boris two hours. No, it was one twenty, and after every move we received one minute. Did he speak a lot about his seventy-two match against Spassky? Not so much. I don't remember too much stories, but that time I was just seventeen. Mm -hmm. 30 years ago uh, of course it was uh, if I would meet him now that Bobby of course I would have different questions and different discussions uh, he loved to being in Budapest he loved eating he liked Hungarian food <laughs> Japanese food as well he, he was busy talking about some old stories but he was obsessed with several topics did you guys play uh, a lot of games? Did you uh, I never played get some wins him against him? One-on-one, -on -one because there were talks that we might be playing a match. Oh, wow. And he said that, well, if we play a match, it has to be the first time, the first game, and we can't cheat the audience. So it really has to be the first time. We play. <laughs> Was that some sort of uh, like superstitious thing? That, or did he just have his, his uh, weird things about him? I I never uh, got the, the real answer for that, whether he was scared or 
he didn't want the challenge or he was really wanted to, to say that it's the first game. I think he really wanted, uh, he was, in some ways, he was very, very clear and very, uh, it, it was sometimes very simple what he was saying, like this one, I mean, what's the big deal, right? I mm -hmm. mean, why can't you play, of course, when we play a match, it's the first time we play, right? It's going to be a classical game or something, so why not? But... Uh, yeah, he was uh, he, he was fun to be around with. He was very cheerful always. Mm. A lot of people have this like mysterious because he we know a lot about his life, but he's also such a mysterious figure in some ways, especially his mentality because he was a genius but also said so many crazy things and well, yeah, that's kind of uh, upsetting and of course I would have different uh image of him if I've never met him mm -hmm. in life. But uh, it's interesting to see those uh, uh, video recordings, archive materials, which is uh, in the museum also. And, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, he, he was outspoken. He was very straightforward. He had a good sense of humor, generally speaking. I, I was actually struck by, I saw this for the first time last night, um, the interview. Mm -hmm. or that the talk show that uh, he went on uh, because it, it was clear that this was some sort of script that they were they were kind of uh, acting this out and he was making some jokes but uh, he was also incredibly charming in the interview and very funny and the audience was laughing and it's like a totally different side from the Fisher that we hear about very often so I was kind of I, I kind of liked seeing that part you know uh, yeah, yeah, and I think you can see quite a few uh, interview with him, where uh, he was funny and and the way he said it, what he said, but I'm not sure it was too much of a script. He you don't think so? Because he was he was making fun of the host. Mm -hmm. I think it was yeah, Dick yeah, but uh, I don't know. I would wonder. It would be even more impressive if it was just off the off the cuff, just uh, improv uh, improvisational. Comedy. Well, probably for these kind of shows, they have a prep, mm -hmm. but it's not that he has to remember every word. Yeah. It's more about the direction of the topics. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that you mentioned was instrumental in your progress as a chess player and your sister's progress as chess players was competing in the open section. Um, do you feel that's... And since you were on the scene, we haven't seen as many female players achieve uh, even remotely close to that level. Do you feel this is something that we're missing and nowadays female players just um, going and competing, purposely competing only against, uh, against men or in the open section? Well, uh, it would be nice to see someone playing on the, on the top level, a lady player. I just hope that in the next decade, let's say, we'll see someone. And, uh, but for that, I think uh, quite a few things has to happen uh, in the mind of, of coaches, parents, mainly. Mm. Because I think you can't really switch at the age of 14, your mindset as a girl. So it has to happen early on. Yeah, it's, it has to be the environment which supports your, uh, uh, your growing uh, as a person, as a chess player, not to have the expectation become a 26-50 player, which means a world champion yeah. level in women chess. 
but uh, to have the mindset to get the, the best you can, which means that look at the chessboard, what's happening, and challenge yourself and go further and further in challenges, whether it's a woman tournament only or an open section. But uh, I think uh, it really uh, means a lot what are the expectations by the parents and moreover by the coaches. Currently, do you see anybody on the scene that could potentially uh, reach the 2750 plus level? Well, it's hard to say. I'm not so much into following all the, the girl talents. Um, I'm not sure we see that girl yet who's mm. going to be over 2750 in the next decade. But, but do you think that's like a mental barrier that like let's say parents or coaches put up in a child they say you need to be this level and this will put you number one in the world uh, amongst women rather than just saying you know this is the best player in history it's uh, let's say Gary or, or Bobby or Magnus whoever it is and this is what you should aim for and that like that early kind of not guidance that early um, motivation that kind of sticks in a, in a child when they grow up and they're like, oh, I reached my goal and now I don't have to improve or there is no, it's just a infinite improvement. I think it's very important. I mean, can you imagine yourself if your parents and your coaches would tell you that, well, if you reach 2650, you're just so amazing and mm. that's the maximum, that's the goal of all. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine yourself that you would ever dream of becoming 27 plus? playing the World Championship title match with Magnus, who is 2,800 and above. It's, uh, I think, uh, what, what people uh, can expect from your potentials, it has a very strong influence unconsciously, what you can really perform. Of course, you can say it's only a small thing, but, but why not? Mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't cost anything. It's just a, a state of mind and the, uh, giving the opportunity in principle, right? So I just see no reason to limit the girls. And even though if the girls, like what I'm usually saying is that, for example, Hui Fan, I, sh I completely believe and I'm convinced that if her goal would be to really to become the best in chess, only by the, the, the thought to have that, she would have like 30 rating points higher, just mm -hmm. by the mm -hmm. fact that she she has mm -hmm. the perspective and the goals to put higher. That's, that's very interesting. Actually, have you, um, have you ever invested in, in terms of like psycho and psychological analysis or trying to think about how, because I, I assume this plays a very important role in all chess players, even for children, right? Maybe even especially for children, but we don't really, it's not like a custom <coughs> in chess to get uh, psychologists or sports psychologists or people who just think about how the mind works and how to like get the most of that. Is that something that you ever did? I was thinking about this for uh, quite a while already. And uh, I got to the conclusion that chess players in, uh, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, when you had your coach, really, or you had your second, they were kind of those kind of people mm -hmm. because uh, 
those those coaches were not telling you only moves, right? Yeah. Or the seconds you're going with, you don't talk only about the variations and where did you go wrong and where to improve. But you go for a walk, you have a chat, mm -hmm. they comfort you after the game, before the game, they tell you, you're great, you're going to mm -hmm. win. So they are like uh, coaches and mental trainers as well, even though if they don't have those official papers and degree, they felt how to support the player in, mm -hmm. uh, and mentally as well, not only with chess moves. Now it's different because, of course, you don't have that kind of those kind of money that you have a coach with you all year around. And I was never working with a psychologist nor with the with the coach from outside of chess. But uh, I would feel that I would probably now, even though I know that most of the chess players on the top they are very skeptical about mm -hmm. working with uh, any person who who would give mental support. And I'm not sure they are right. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, I spoke to Rustam uh, when we were working yeah. together quite a lot also about this because he was a big believer that psychology, and I think Magnus feels the same way, that psychology is such a big part of chess. And maybe it's because also some, most chess players are very stubborn and they don't want to, they're very independent, they don't want to get help from you know, some non-chess people. And I think it's not only that, but some long time ago, the chess players were also hiding so much every single information, mm -hmm. including what are their habits in eating, sleeping, walking, mm -hmm. <laughs> training. Mm -hmm. So it's it's like, I mean, you saw some press conferences from previous World Championship mm -hmm. matches where simply people don't say, when do they breathe, when do they eat, what time or whatever, because every Everything information is, is information that yeah. they can look into. So I think it has some unconsciously some... Uh, uh, feeling that, no, it's my secret, I don't want to share it with anybody. But uh, I believe that it helps, uh, it can help uh, very much in uh, knowing yourself better, which can lead to the fact that you make better decisions. Mm -hmm. And whether it's opening choice or you feel yourself when you're nervous, how to deal with that, uh, so those things I think very important and it could help a lot but chess players has to have also a different mindset and that's very difficult for chess players for the classical chess player what we had that every little detail counts and this is something you don't want to give out from your personality to some outsider but uh, and I'm not sure psychologist is the best. Probably it is. I was working once with a coaching person already after I retired. It, I was uh, the captain of the Hungarian team and I was mm -hmm. looking for someone to help the team members. And of course, most of the members are oh, no way, come on, <laughs> no way. But there was uh, one player who said, yeah, why not? And he was very happy after that. Uh, can, you say, can you say who it was, or is it, is it a private? Well, I don't know if he wants to okay, okay, to know it. Enough, it's, uh, but it's it's very clear that it helped him. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I was working with this lady like ten uh, session, not for chess, but the things I had in my life, uh, doing other things already, not as a professional. And it helped me a lot also. Mm. So I had mm. to recognize it that. Uh, it's not that they are going to give you the solution. It's about that they they open up uh, some of your uh, uh, your personal uh, way of thinking, 
and you have to do j- the job yourself. It just gives you hand. Yeah, I was thinking about this a bit as well because we have so many chess players who we could describe as geniuses. Obviously, Magnus or or Levon uh, or Hikaru, um, but some achieve more success than others. And I don't know if it's so much natural genius or if it's because of some they could extract the most of their potential. And maybe we we don't think about how all the ways we could do this. You know, what could make the most of someone's potential, especially for children, that could be could be especially helpful. Judith, I feel we would be able to actually spend <laughs> so many hours uh, chatting with you about everything, but I know you have a flight to catch, so we're running a bit out of time. Um, I think this is a great moment to to live it for the audience as well with uh, incredible advice for young female chess players as well as for everybody pretty much. Open up, of course. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure. And uh, what's next for you? Let's uh, finish on that note. <laughs> well, in the near future, next week, I'm going to be for the Challengers uh, Chess Tour final in Israel. So that's I'm going to be commentating between two Indian talents. <laughs> and uh, well, in the future itself, I'm working a lot on promoting chess in education because I believe that's something good for every kid, not depending on becoming a champion, but just for their skills to be developed. Judith, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Judith.